Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 246, for April 29th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 91. Security Now is brought to you by GoToTraining. Improve learning, participation, and access to training programs, plus save a bunch with GoToTraining. For a free trial, visit GoToTraining.com. And by the new Carbonite Pro. It's simple, secure, and affordable online backup for your small business. For a free trial and to learn more, visit CarbonitePro.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers everything you would ever want to know about protecting yourself online, about your online privacy. Boy, that's a big topic these days. Uh, and, and the guy who knows all, who sees all, who tells all, Mr. Steve Gibson from GRC.com, the creator of Spinrite, the world's best hard drive maintenance utility. He's also a create, creator of a number of really useful security utilities and joins us every week for the last 245 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> to talk yeah, about in security. fact, I looked at the number and I thought, "Whoa, wait a minute, where are we at our five-year mark?" And that's when we're at episode two sixty. Close. So today is two forty-six. So we're fourteen weeks away from finishing year five. So now yeah. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't tired when I started. Now I'm tired. That's a lot. That's amazing. But if, by the way, folks, this this and this was, I think, always Steve's goal. This archive of 245 now 246 episodes is really a great primer in security how it works how computers work what cryptography is how what the principles of it are and and i think that was always your goal is to create this body of of knowledge that people can refer back to that is so useful so please take advantage of that yes well, when you and i were first talking about it my first thought was well that you know this could be a a, a long-term collection rather than something transient you know, very much like what I did with you when I would pop on to um, the tech TV shows. You know, trying to do sort of useful foundational stuff. And what I think is surprising is that that kind of material is has, a, has an extremely long life. I mean, we're talking often about fundamental aspects of technology that just don't change all that fast. I mean, new stuff comes along and we talk about that too, but... You know, there's, there's, as you say, it's a, it's a great repository. Well, you've done a good job, and we're going to keep doing so. This is a Q and A episode. That means you've got uh, questions and uh, answers from your audience, and we're going to get to those. We also have um, some really interesting security news. Yep. Um, you know, today I decided to deactivate my Facebook accounts because I'm so concerned about the privacy, the privacy issues that Facebook is raising with this new Open Graph initiative. And I'm just yep. not understanding how much of my information is leaking. Uh, and you know, it's a little troubling. You can opt out on Facebook from sharing your information. But then there's this little troubling statement that says, well, you've opted out, but you know, your, your friends can still share your information with other people. 
And you have to opt out of that, too. And the whole thing, the structure of it is too complex for me. I'm very concerned about it. So I know you don't have a Facebook page. I don't. Uh, well, but I have, you know, well, I, mean, I was going to say I, I have a website, which is sort of That's my, different. And so that's what I'm going to do. Equivalent. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm going to yeah, do. It, it, it's funny. There's just a, um, in reading through the mail this morning, choosing questions, there was one that I, I didn't choose, but I, a person I responded to who was just sort of talking about the philosophy of security. And I, I mentioned that, you know, for example, I will, I, I just have these instincts built in now. I will talk about trips that I have had, like when I have returned. Right. But I never talk, I never talk ahead of time about a trip I'm going to take. It's just, it's just built into me. You know, it's this information gets out there and it's, I got a wide audience and it's just like, okay, I'm happy to talk about where I was. I don't want to talk about where I'm going because it means where I'll be and it also implies where I'm not. Yeah, I have to get to that point. And I've been a little open. And I, you know, I, before I get bit, I should probably can reconsider that whole thing. It's a little different because I'm a public figure and, you know, this business relies on me being a public figure and I've something I signed up for, in effect. Mm -hmm. But boy, you do have to really worry about that. Yeah, it's just sort of a mindset. Yeah. Let us, uh, I'll tell you what, can we do a quick uh, commercial before we get into the meat of the matter? We have some Absolutely. security updates, but I do want to remind everybody uh, about our newest uh, sponsor. Well, really, Citrix has been around for a long time because they do go to meeting. They do go to my PC. Citrix Enterprise, of course, is world famous as the, the uh, enterprise remote access solution. They've got a new product based on these remote access solutions that's great for training. Now, if you're a trainer, if you do online e-learning, I want you to listen up. But even if you're not, even if you're an IT manager or somebody who's been in a training session before, I want you to listen up. Because GoToTraining takes all of that security, ease of use, power, speed, flexibility of the other Citrix products and applies it to your business, to training. Uh, of course, you get all the benefits of, of the other products like screen sharing. You know, you can have multiple trainers in multiple countries even because you can pass control from presenter to presenter just as you can with the other products. There's built-in voice over IP, which I think is so slick. I, I keep doing these meetings now on the iPad with GoToMeeting where they can hear me, I can hear them. It's kind of, I keep thinking I have to make a phone call. I don't. The, the whole thing is contained because it's got VoIP built in. You've also got chat, but here's some additional features for training. You can have up to 200 people in your seminar. Interactive tests, polls, quizzes, uh, feedback, chat. So you can really have a fully interactive session as you do it live. And then you can record the whole thing and it's available on demand. So you get 200 people for the live session, but it, you, of course, as you know, if you do training, you've got to do it over and over again, not with go to, go to training, because go to training, you do it once, and you've got a recording, and now you can do it anytime. You can create and customize your own training tests. You can send out email invites to the training session right inside go to training. You can upload any kind of document, any kind of information to a curriculum library they can access before, during, and after the training sessions. Look, this is a great solution. If you want training to be better in your company, if you are a trainer, if you need to know more, go to gototraining.com. Gototraining.com. You can get a 30-day free trial, unlimited trial. It's no, you know, there's no stamp saying this is a trial version. There's no time limit or anything. Just 30 days of unlimited use. Do it. If you've got a training coming up, do it and take a look. And I have to say, I have used it and I'm really impressed. Go to training.com. Try it free today. All right, Steve Gibson, lots of security news. Let's get right into the matter here. 
Yeah. Um, first off, uh, it became, um, I, I guess it, it wasn't an official announcement, but somebody who said he really wasn't supposed to tell what was going on um, did reveal to the New York Times, and I saw it somewhere else, that that Google's, as a result of these attacks that Google had suffered, which we've talked about on a number of occasions, they just, they've continued to go back forensically and look at what it was exactly that happened. And they now know that they lost control of, of a chunk of, of their login um, management. They call it uh, Gaia, G-A-I-A, which is their so-called Google's single sign-on, and they lost the source code, meaning it wasn't stolen from them, but somebody who who penetrated their network was able to get a copy of it. Holy cow! And so they and so you know th- this is the way, for example, that you log in to sort of the Googleplex as like you know using your your Gmail login, and then all of the various services you're you're simultaneously logged into so, and that's what we mean when we say single sign on you just you authenticate yourself to google once and that creates some persistence throughout their services so what we now know from this leak that is on the inside is that a google employee located in china received a message through Microsoft Messenger containing, <laughs> we know, a link. Oh, boy. The employee, the Google employee oh. in China clicked on the link, oh, which was delivered by Microsoft Messenger, which linked to a malicious website, which then installed a Trojan. It, it, it infected that employee's machine, installed a Trojan that gave unknown parties access into Google's network using that machine as a launching point they were then able to to penetrate the network and get to the software developers source code repository where the single sign-on code was stored and one of the security researchers um, actually with a different company made the comment that if if there was, as part of the source code repository, an internal list of known problems with the current single oh, sign-on system, of course, then uh, you know, as exactly, oh. with, you know, like a list of things that they're, they're that they intend to fix or they're working on, then you know that could be extra problematical. And of course, the the danger is that given the source code, bad guys could could go through it with an eye toward finding finding opportunities for exploitation that you know that it's very difficult for for Google's own people to see. I mean we've talked often about this how odd this mindset is. It's one thing to look at source code and say, you know, is it going to protect people from well is it going to pr- provide secure sign-on services, which is what the authors of this system want. It, and it's just, it's such a different mindset to look at it with an eye toward how can we maliciously exploit 
the same code? What can we feed this that will cause it to react in a way that the developers didn't want, but which was behavior that just got included by mistake? And, of course, that's what the bad guys will do. So, I mean, this doesn't mean anything necessarily bad, except it was in the news this week, and I thought our listeners would find it interesting. And, you know, I mean, potentially, potentially only, uh, it's of concern. So, um, I, I'm for me, this demonstrates the value of maintaining logs, which is which must be the way this kind of forensic work is being done. Is right. that there is lots of logging being done so that researchers are able to go back through and determine that it it you know where the penetration came from, backtrack that to the machine, backtrack that to an, a Microsoft Messenger message received by this particular employee on this machine that clicked this link, and that's how it happened. Wow. I mean, that, that that's amazing forensics. But, you know, that's what Google now knows about uh, at least one aspect of, of the penetration into their network. It's a little different now because in the, um, in the days of, uh, you know, like Cuckoo's Nest, uh, Cliff Stoll and so forth, the first thing a hacker who broke in would do was modify the logs so that there was no trace of the hacker, or at least attempt to. But with these scripts and these Trojans, you don't have access to the logs necessarily. You're not necessarily rooting the machine, for instance. Precisely. In fact, exactly. In, in, in the instance you're talking about, you'd be getting onto a specific machine and you'd be changing the logs on that machine. You'd have to have root access to do that, of course. Well, and here we're probably talking about log logging servers on entirely different, different networks yeah. Yeah. or, or d different machines right. that are logging traffic. And so, you know, traffic logging is, is, a, is much different than, you know, local machine activity logging, which is, you know, in old school, that's what Unix machines uh, were, were uh, really good at doing, you know, rotating their logs and, and compressing the logs and, and keeping this for you know, in order to determine if something went wrong, what was the cause for it? Right. Fascinating. In another very different story, um, there was news actually from last week um, that the the cellular GSM system was legally hacked by a pair of security <laughs> researchers, Nick DiPetrillo and Don Bailey. Um, and what 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 I mean when I say legally hacked is they very cleverly took advantage of of just the globalness essentially of gsm and features the system has to incorporate in order to do what it does the first thing they did was to realize that the caller id system has an api meaning that that in order for a a phone to to have in order in order for the GSM system to support caller ID, there's got to be essentially an open directory, which is able to map phone numbers to owners. Right. So when I mean that's what caller ID is. Right. Is it says this phone is calling you. Oh, and by the way, here's who it is. Um, and in one article that I read, they used you know Brad Pitt as an example, just of someone <laughs> famous, and so. So the idea is what these guys realized was that they could 
set up. They use an open source PBX. I had the feeling it was asterisk, but I'm not sure. They use an open source PBX, but something like that, where the API is supported and they're able to walk the walk the tree of all possible cellular phone numbers because we know what the prefixes are on those. And so they basically just query this globally available API to build their own dictionary of their own mapping, basically, you know, suck, suck this, this database out, which is a distributed database, pull it all together into one place, which maps phone numbers to people's identities. But then the other thing that has to be possible for, for a global cellular network to function is there has to be inherently a location system. That is, it must be the case that when you want to call some phone number, a GSM phone number, that there's a way for, you know, a network where you are to, to know how to route the call to the network where that destination phone number currently is. That is its current location. And so they worked, they reverse engineered that and figured out how essentially to determine the, the location that is in terms of like, like city and even sub-city um, geographic uh, um, proximity to, for, for any given phone number on the GSM system, which, of course, somewhere in the system that has to be available in order for you to send, you know, in order for the system to find the phone, wherever it is. And as we know, when your phones are turned on, they're constantly pinging your, your local cell towers, identifying themselves. And in fact, that technology we've talked in the past about, for example, how it's being used in shopping malls and things in order to like to, to anonymously or maybe not as anonymously as we would like to, to track people's habits as they walk through shopping malls, you know, which, which windows do they stop in front of? How long do they stay there? You know, how, how much do they use the bathrooms and how long do they stay there? You know, all of that kind of information we now know is being collected for various, you know, marketing and demographic profiling purposes. So the third thing that these guys did was they realized that cellular voicemail can be tricked. And there's a, there's something called sly something, a sly call or sly mail. I'm not sure. I don't remember now, but it's, it's a technique for, for sending two calls to a cellular number slightly skewed in time so that the second call arriving finds the first call in progress and instantly goes to voicemail. It turns out that if you skew these two calls and you drop the first one, then you're able to get your call, your second call to go to the cellular voicemail without ever ringing the handset. And it turns out that in at least T-Mobile's voicemail system is vulnerable to voicemail spoofing wow. that allows this technology to access that destination phone's voicemail, allowing you to listen to all the messages that have been saved and get all the phone numbers 
of all the people who left messages. Oh, man. Basically allowing you, and these guys demonstrate this. Jeez. Allowing you to build a social network of, you know, for example, you, you can determine using this all legal hacking. None of this was illegal. No crypto was broken. Wow. This is just, well, although I wonder, you know, how people would feel about voicemail being slipped into. That seems a little wrong. <laughs> I'm not sure that still qualifies as legal. But mostly they're, they're leveraging technologies which are necessarily open, necessarily available um, in, in, in order to, lo- to determine, for example, where Brad Pitt is by name, then to, to confirm that it's probably the right Brad Pitt by by slipping into his voicemail and seeing that he's he's you know he's got messages from Angelina Jolie for example, <laughs> and it's like okay this is that's him <laughs> you know, this is the right Brad, and essentially then get the phone numbers of those people wow. and do the same thing to them to build a a large graph and to know where all these people are more or less. In real time. Amazing. So, yeah, a little bit of a wake-up call yeah. about, you know, about about what it means to have your cell phone on and be walking around. I mean, you do, we, we're losing anonymity, you know, right and left. You know, and the, uh, it's kind of the, one of the principal um, techniques in uh, that book, Demon and uh, Freedom TM, uh, Daniel Suarez's books. Is, is the first thing people do when they start, they oh. God, they throw away their cell phone or they smash it or they break it because they know, you know, the demon can track them. Well, and, you know, it's, it's a it's a common it's a common theme now that we that we see in, in TVs and movies is, right. you know, is, is that your cell phone is 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 giving away your location to, you know, the agencies that have access. And it turns out that you don't even need to be a government agency. Anybody you just need to be, yeah. you know, a couple clever Jeez. guys. Yeah. Wow. Um, I wanted to mention that Mozilla has decided to blackmail or block <laughs> blockmail they they call it or I'm sorry block list not blacklist blocklist blocklist the the um uh java development kit which we talked about a couple weeks ago having a zero day vulnerability and you'll remember that that oracle that now owns sun and thus sun was originally not going to be updating it because they didn't figure it was a big enough problem until it began getting exploited actively. Yeah. And then they decided to push out an update, which they have done. So, uh, I, But in, in pursuing this, I ran across an interesting URL that I hadn't seen before, which is the list of all add-ons which the Mozilla is proactively block listing hmm. which i thought was really nice so it's www.mozilla.com slash en hyphen us in in this case it's for you know english us so mozilla.com slash en hyphen us slash block list and it's a not very long but sort of interesting list of of problems that the Mozilla team have found over time, and it's version-based. So, for example, at the very bottom of the list at the time of this recording, at the, bo- at the bottom of the list, there is, sure enough, the Java development kit and the version number lower than which it will not allow Java to run in the, the add-on to run in the browser. And I just want to give... Mozilla and, of course, the Firefox team props for 
being this proactive. Yeah, I mean, no this kidding. is really, really this is great. what we want. Yeah. You know, and and unfortunately, it's what we need. We need them watching out for us because not everyone is listening to security now. Right. And uh, and, you know, making sure that their Java development kit is up to date um, as it gets changed. In other news, turns out that one of the patches which Microsoft released in the most recent Patch Tuesday, which was two weeks ago, April 13th, um, was a, <laughs> some researchers have called it a placebo patch. Oh, great. Because it does nothing. It does nothing but makes you feel better. Turns, it turns out it's, it was to deal with a, a buffer overflow, a remote code exploit buffer overflow, which was regarded as serious um, in the media services for Windows 2000 server. So not something that's going to affect most listeners. Certainly, it could be a concern for corporations that are still running Windows Media, Windows 2000 server with publicly available media services being published. Um, it's a it's a buffer overflow in their media unicast service, um, and Microsoft is going to be publishing that they've they've taken it out of the patch bundle now for you know for any more patches that are being pushed and they're they're revising it and are going to publish it next week so here's the question did they know it's a placebo did they know it was a placebo patch or just what i mean what's the deal how do you release a patch that does nothing there was just a mistake on their end they believed that it fixed the problem somehow it, it came to their attention that after this patch was applied the problem still existed so they said oh oops uh whoops well, and so they're stopped. They're, they've 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 stopped pushing it out, and they'll update it and push out another one. So, I doubt that most listeners will even be aware of it. Um, people who are running Windows 2000 Server um, will probably see it. Um, maybe it's granular enough that it will only disturb them if they've got media media services installed. And Microsoft, you know, did their standard. Oh well, it's not installed by default. So it's like okay, fine. So you know, that's. <laughs> I guess that's good. <laughs> um, Broken and by default. <laughs> worth, worth noting that we only have a few more months of Windows 2K Pro and 2K Server patches. Uh, that expires. The extended service period ends on July 13th of 2010 of, of this year. So a few more months and then no more updates for Windows 2000. Oh, it's boy. really, really at the end of its life. Yeah. And then in one last little bit of news, we talked about the um, all of the brouhaha raised by CBS News's uh, really interesting investigative report where they purchased a couple copy machines that had the hard drives in them. One of them was previously leased by a company called Affinity Health Plan. And they have since, this Affinity Health Plan is, you know, a health insurance company has acknowledged the data breach and sent out 409,262 notices. Oh, boy. To, and so, you know, not quite half a million, 409,262 to all former and current employees, the <sighs> providers they work with, job applicants, health insurance network members... And app prior applicants for health insurance coverage, uh, notifying all those people that their confidential personal data may have been leaked through the loss of a, quote, unerased 
digital copier hard drive. So, you know, the good news is this has made a large enough splash um, and, and caused a, a big enough problem that, you know, I, I hope that the news gets out both to vendors of copy machines who really ought to provide some facility, not this, oh, for an extra $500, you can yeah. add the option which scrubs a drive. But I mean, there ought to be some facility where, I mean, it just, it, it, it somehow this thing reminds you that, that hard drives are going to be storing this information or, you know, just time out the data. I, I do not understand how or why a copy machine has, you know, this wealth of information stored on it. But, you know, clearly it does. There's a group, I don't know if you're aware of it, at privacyrights.org, the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, and they do a running tally of uh, how much personal information has been released in security breaches since January 2005. Now, this is only the stuff that's public, right? Like the, the, the ones we just heard about. 353,812,819 records. That's pretty much everybody in the U.S. <laughs> Have, and these are the ones we know about since in the last five years. You have to be so far off the grid not to, yeah. you know, be, to be caught in one of these. It's amazing. I mean, I guess yeah. the question, and it's a legitimate question, is how much of the stuff that does get out is actually used against you, you know, or is it just kind of in a dumpster somewhere? It's potentially a problem, right? Yeah, yes, I would say potentially one of the things that I've noticed, and I've noticed this really from sort of tracking the the rate at which spam finds address, you know, address. email addresses. Yeah. Yes, yeah. is there's a really long lag. Right, I, it's like this stuff gets out there and it's a it's it it accretes for a while and you know sits somewhere and then it gets purchased. But I mean, it seems to take. Like most spammers, you know, a, quite a while, many, many, many months to sort of finally say, okay, I guess, you know, we're going to start, you know, sending email out. Now, that, of course, that, the, the, that model may be very different for, for um, things like bank account logins. There, you'd imagine that there would be much more notion of timeliness. And we know, in fact, that some, some mischief is happening in near real time. I did run across another uh, story just during the week um, about the number of CAPTCHAs which are now being hacked by, by contractors in, in third world countries who are well networked now where they're, they're only earning, you know, $10, $12 a day, but, they're, but they're, they're, there's a, like, they're full sweatshops Full of people sitting in front of computers that are doing captchas, and as we know, that's got to be a real time event. So somewhere, someone, you know, spammers are are being presented with a captcha because they want to create a spamming email account, and on the fly, they send that into some network of captcha hacking where it pops up on a screen in you know China or India or somewhere, and someone there solves the captcha in real time sends the results back and the spammer is able to convince the the people who are protecting themselves that way that they're a human and and acquire a new account for spamming so some things happen on the fly and it's clear that other things take months 
Two. And, and you know this. I don't. I don't think I'm revealing anything important. But you know this because you change your email address at the beginning of every new year, right? So you know yeah. how long that new fresh address takes before it starts getting spam. And it's what you said. It's a few months. It, it's it's surprisingly long. And this I mean, is a I, good technique, by the way. I I do I do have Sue and Greg will will leave the the support and sales email addresses active for several months into the next year so that anyone who that we may have a dialogue ongoing with of course won't suddenly have it die on January 1st and they will say to me okay you know can we kill last year's email address cuz you <laughs> know there's, <laughs> yeah there's there's junk coming in on it yeah, so yeah, yeah but it, but it, if if you do that uh it it certainly is effective Steve does it algorithmically, so people like me know in January 1st exactly what his new address would be. Right. We can generate it. Now, something I've been meaning to talk about for weeks that just sort of popped into my head, I thought was extremely clever. And this occurred when I clicked the little Maps button on my iPad shortly after getting it, and it knew where I was. (laughs) Yeah, your Wi-Fi iPad. Yes. Yeah. And very accurately, the, by the way, so with startling accuracy, yeah. like within 80, 80 meters or something. It's it very was good. amazing. Yeah. And then I said, I set about thinking, well, OK, uh, how do it know? How does it know? And and what's so cool and maybe a little disturbing is is the way it knows. And that is that. All Wi-Fi networks, even when they are secured, when they're as encrypted as we could ever have our listeners encrypt themselves using, you know, state-of-the-art WPA2 encryption with uncrackable passwords, that encryption is carried within non-encrypted packets. That is to say that the payload of the ETH of the wireless Ethernet packets which which the wi-fi system uses the payload is encrypted but the packet container isn't and so (laughs) what was that (laughs) That, that's email coming in that's funny who is that bam bam what is that yeah, it's just uh, a WAV file. You got mail. Yeah, I found it on CompuServe years uh, ago. I love it. Um, <laughs> they found so, your address, Steve. Someone just sent me something. <laughs> so, um, so the the well, what I'm saying is that that even in an encrypted network, the MAC address of the access point is known. And is visible to everyone. And MAC addresses are unique. You can manually force them to be something. But from the manufacturer, you know, they're a 48-bit address. 24 bits being a, a, a manufacturing ID. The other 24 bits being the the a unique serial number within that manufacturing ID. So what has been done, and I guess this was Google rolling around. No, all no, no. The, it's a company called Skyhook. Oh, Skyhook. That, yeah. that, now, now that you say it, I, I remember that. I mean, there are other Roll, companies probably, but Skyhook's the big one. Rolling around our city streets and residential neighborhoods, 
they had antennas out and they were acquiring the MAC addresses of all the access points that were available. If you think about it, it's kind of kind of clever. It's very clever. I mean, it's really, I mean, I would say it's really cool if it didn't sort of give me the little bit of the willies from a, from a privacy and uh, from a privacy standpoint. But they're not using anything that you aren't broadcasting to the world. That's true. All they have That's is a GPS in their truck and, uh, and, and basically, you know, Stumbler. And, and they say MAC address, GPS, MAC address, GPS, and they triangulate. Yes. Well, and, and see that that's just it is they've got they have signal strength. Right. And all the Mac addresses. And, you know, I'm sure people who have laptops will have the experience I have of you pretty much wherever you are these days. <laughs> if you look at, you know, like, like look at all the avail- all the available networks, you'll see maybe a list. I mean, from my own location, there's like 12 th- that are like around me. And. So most of them, I'm, I'm happy to say, most of them are encrypted. But that doesn't matter because MAC addresses are not. The, con- the contents of the packages are, the MAC addresses are not, which I thought, which is the little, the little moment of aha that I had when I realized that's how this is being done. And so if you've got Wi-Fi and access to this, this database or one of these databases, it's pretty much possible to know where you are all the time. If um, I hide my SSID, does that doesn't, break it? Nope. No, because there's matter. still packets going out. The only thing you could do, if you if you really wanted to, like, obscure this, you, and, and I mean, you have to do it deliberately, you could go, like, get the MAC address of an access point so, like somewhere else in the country, you could spoof your MAC address. Yes, and manually change your MAC address. Now, that would not cause a problem because there's no chance of a Wi-Fi collision. That is, you know, the MAC, the MAC address being broadcast here and on an access point in New York. I, I'm in California. Someone, someone else with the same MAC address is in New York. Well, the only problem would ever that you'd ever have would be if those two access points were within radio range of each other, which, because they're at opposite ends of the continent, would never be a problem. In which case, that would really foul up, <laughs> it would really foul up anyone who is using this technology to locate themselves because suddenly they would think they were in New York if they happened to be, you know, close to mine. But you'd imagine, too, that this technology, if it was good enough, it would say, "Wait a minute! You know, we got one outlier. No right. We got one outlier, and three others are do look like they're valid. So discard this one that seems to be, you know, some sort of a mistake." If you're in an urban area, or at least a s- area where there's some population density, this always seems to work. It doesn't work well, of course, if you're not near Wi-Fi. It doesn't work at all, right? And it may not work well if you only have one Wi-Fi access point nearby but anywhere densely populated it's 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 pretty you're right i noticed it with the ipad i've known about it for a long time but it's amazing you don't really need gps yes i mean it nailed me just absolutely i looked at i thought okay i'm gonna do a little research here and figure out how this happens and what i loved was that i just wanted to share with our listeners was the realization that that access points are generally not moving they're in a fixed location and their MAC addresses are completely available, being broadcast, whether they're encrypted or not. So that creates a wealth of, of 
reception point opportunities. And you can imagine that this, I wanted to call them Skynet. Uh, you said it was Skyhook. Skyhook, but it might as well be Sky. Might as well be Skynet. <laughs> that, that, you know, they've got super sensitive receivers on their, on their trucks, more sensitive than we normally would use or need because it's, it's allowing them to, to do ranging on, but by, by virtue of signal strength right. and, you know, and, and just, just very clever. I thought it was neat. In the chat room, somebody's saying that Google also does this with, and it would make sense if you're driving around, you might as well. Yeah, why not? If, why you, not? if you're taking pictures of sidewalks and, and <laughs> all that, might as well suck in as much information as you can. Why not? Yeah. Tie it all together. The more we Hard know. Hard drives are big. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's really changed. That's what I think the big change in privacy is not so much that we expose ourselves more. That's part of it, but not really the big part of it. The big part of it is that computers are really adept at taking disparate databases and cross-referencing and drawing a picture of somebody. So when all, I mean, look, real estate records have been published publicly in courthouses for centuries. It was only when they went online, when somebody went to the courthouse, typed them in and put them online that it became a problem. In fact, a buddy of mine recently purchased a house and he said, you wouldn't believe the amount of official looking junk mail that yeah. I'm receiving because somewhere there's a record that I'm sure someone's selling the database of new home purchases and, you know, marketers are purchasing them and sending them, you know, oh, look, you owe money. In many cases, these local governments are not putting this data online, but people go to the courthouse Get the public records on paper and type them in. There's a market for it. There's a heck of a market for it. And just use yep. a Zillow sometimes, Z-I-L-L-O-W dot com. You can find out what all your neighbors are making, what their houses are worth. All of that. <laughs> it's kind of scary. <laughs> but it's all public information. It's the, it's the power of a computer to, to, to collate this information, cross-reference it, yep. and make it available. That really has transformed everything. Yep. Aggregation. Aggregation. We have some great questions from our audience. As always, Steve has collated the best, the most representative questions. 11 questions, good and true. And a large dose of, not surprisingly, iPad security issues. I asked for them, and we got them. Oh, good. So we're going to beat this thing to death today, and I want all of our listeners to know, at that point, we're done. <laughs> we're <laughs> oh, it's worthwhile. Look, they're selling these uh, at a rapid clip. More than a million now, Leo. More than a million now. And yep. uh, uh, I think they may become a very ubiquitous uh, computing platform. So it's really appropriate to address security, particularly since you cannot put any security software on this thing. Right. What you, you've, and there is a question about that, as a matter of yeah. fact, this week. What you see is what you get. So how good is what you get? We'll talk about it in just a sec. Before we do, though, there is an, an element of security that's, that's sometimes overlooked. We talk about security, but what happens when the worst happens? You better darn well have a good backup. Backups are a part of your security plan. And it's even more important in business because your business relies on the data on those hard drives. You lose that, you're out of business. That's why every business should have a backup strategy. And that backup strategy absolutely must include off-site backup. Carbonite knows that. They've been doing off-site backup for consumers for years. A great service automatically backing up all your personal data to the cloud securely using AES 256-bit encryption. You control the key, so only you can get that data. SSL encryption, so even unencrypted data is protected in transmission. All of those things, fast and easy recovery from any platform they can get online, including an iPhone. They've got an iPhone app. But a lot of people in business said, wait a minute, we want that Carbonite security for our business. In fact, Carbonite found out that 
A lot of companies were just buying multiple Carbonite consumer accounts and putting them on each machine. Well, there's a better way now. Brand new from Carbonite. Windows right now only, soon to be Macintosh. Carbonite Pro for your small business. Carbonite is a service developed specifically for individuals. Carbonite Pro developed specifically for small business and priced that way too. You don't need any extra hardware. You, you don't need to be technical. A lot of small businesses don't have an IT department. You know, if you're the if you're the sole proprietor, you are the IT department. But they have many machines. They have a lot of data, and they have an even heightened need for data protection. This is where Carbonite Pro comes in. Every employee can access his or her own backup files. You will be notified. You have a central dashboard and a single account, so you know what's backed up, what's not. Uh, your office can get up and running again. Boom, just like that. Should the worst happen. And, you know, if you're in an office and everything is lost because of fire or flood or whatever, you can still get back to business right away with Carbonite because your data is not stored in the same space. They're stored off-site on sophisticated data centers where they're battery-backed up, power-backed up, conditioned, and saved forever. Prices for your business start as low as $10 a month. If you have eight computers, five gigs of backup, that's just $25 a month. 25 bucks a month for complete peace of mind. I want you to try Carbonite Pro free for 30 days. Go to CarbonitePro.com. If you are the IT department, or if you're the boss and the IT department, or if you know, that, and I can't tell you how many businesses I go into and they have no backup plan, or it's a very ad hoc backup plan. You know, the, the uh, HR person is supposed to go around with a hard drive or something. No, 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 no. Carbonite Pro. Dot com. It's a big part of your security plan, your backup. CarbonitePro.com. you got to back it up to get it back with Carbonite. All right, Steve, I've got questions for you. Are you ready? You betcha. Starting with Greg Christopher in Silicon Valley. Uh, and again, this has to do with security. He says Apple's restrictive development tools SDK agreement doesn't do anything for security. Hi, Steve. Thanks, as always. For another great show, I listened with great interest to your discussion around the iPhone security model. The iPhone is still using a lot of OS X underneath, so there is a lot of potential for entry points by hackers. We know very well, uh, um, this is parenthetical, I'm saying this, that uh, Mark Maffray has pointed this out, that there's a lot of holes in OS X, especially in this open source software. Uh, I'm in agreement that the App Store is a good defense against spyware and against viruses creeping into the iPhone the way they have on the Android platform, but I did disagree with something you said. When discussing the SDK agreement, you brought up the thought that the new wording in the SDK agreement actually increases security. It does not. Apple said in this new SDK, you may not use third-party tools. You can only use Apple tools to develop for the iPhone and the iPad. He says the problem is that Apple is now dictating how you develop to their APIs. A technology recently developed by Adobe simply takes a Flash application and reconstitute it to be a compiled program that calls the Apple APIs to do its work. There's no system-level Flash interpreter, nor native code that circumvents those APIs. It's all going through standard, documented, Objective-C APIs. Apple's agreement simply there to make it harder for developers to make something that works on the iPhone and, let's say, Android or Palm or Windows Mobile. In essence, when Adobe changed their application development environment to conform with Apple's rules, Apple changed the rules. And they did so about four days before a multi-year development effort was supposed to be released to customers. It's hard to look at this in any way but as anti-competitive. Here's the wording. Quote from the Apple SDK agreement. 3.31 applications, that's the newest version, 
Applications may only use documented APIs in the manner prescribed by Apple and must not use or call any private APIs. Applications must be originally written in Objective-C, C, C++, or JavaScript as executed by the iPhone OS WebKit engine. And only code written in C, C++, and Objective-C may compile and directly link against documented APIs. For example, applications that link to documented APIs through an intermediary translation or compatibility layer or tool are prohibited. While Apple could say that user experience might suffer due to lack of the normal interface, there are no human interface guidelines for the iPhone, and every application behaves differently since most buttons are non-standard and menus non-existent. So from a security perspective, I don't think we've gotten anything here, but from both an iPhone user and iPhone developer perspective, we're being given less choice. Thanks again for the great podcast, which I highly value for its technical newsworthiness and entertainment value. Greg Christopher. Steve? I agree. Support. <laughs> Nothing more to be said here. I, um, I don't remember... I don't think we said it was a security thing. Yes. I don't remember saying that Apple changing that was uh, enhanced the, the the iPhone OS security, but I wanted to correct the record if if that was the impression that we gave, and and I do agree that I think this particular decision is it's hard to see it as anything but what really that does appear to be an Apple versus Adobe war going on. Is that, I mean, there's that one argument and, you know, uh, when, when somebody emailed Steve Jobs and said, what's the story? Steve pointed to a John Gruber blog post. He said, this is, this explains it. And you're absolutely right. There's huge anti-competitive elements to this. But the one argument you could make in its favor is that if you allow a third party tool that develops one, write once, run many like Java to a lot of different platforms then users of those programs no longer get to use, or Apple no longer drives the features available to them. This third-party interpreter does. Because only features available to the third-party interpreter are available mm. to the user. Lowest common denominator. It's lowest problem. common denominator. Now, uh, you might say, well, yeah, okay, but we'll, we'll make that deal with the devil to have all this new development. Apple's basically saying, we don't want some other third-party to drive what features are available in the iPhone. If this tool suddenly becomes very successful... It's out of our hands now. We can add a feature to the iPhone that's not available to users because they're using these applications developed right. by this third-party tool. So I think that that's, you know, a I was factor. Say, that sounds a little bit like, okay, how can we justify what we want to do? Yeah. I mean, so. it's, it clearly there's economic benefit to Apple doing it that way. I, I think you might say there's some security benefit because, of course, an interpreter can always introduce flaws. I guess he's saying it compiles down to native code, so... Um, it you know by the time the user gets it, it's not using the interpreter. Um, is it possible? Can you see a scenario where that still could add a security flaw? I guess if the libraries and the APIs are all secure, let's say they're one hundred percent secure, using an interpreter that compiles down to API calls, that would I have think to be it would secure. be more secure actually to to use something which is going to create a, a layer of automation between right. you and the way you use the API would tend to prevent you from making a mistake with the API. Right. So, unless yeah, the, I, Unless Adobe made the mistake. 
<laughs> well, they would never Mis do that. Mistakes would be mistakes would be centralized. Be, that never makes <laughs> never makes errors, Leo. <laughs> but but the mistakes would be centralized, and and because of that, would be easier to fix. Yes, 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 and probably hope. Well, what one would hope it would get caught early on. So we've seen. I mean, Microsoft's had problems with. Uh, remember the um, exploit with uh, uh, Metafiles, um, with its uh, its Metafile libraries. Everybody used that library and as a result had problems. But that's not what we're talking about here because it wouldn't be a library that would be used by the code. It would only be a library used by the code to compile to the native API. Correct. That's I mean, I, I really do agree with Greg yeah. and, and the point he raises. I think, I, it, to me, it this really seems arbitrary and mean-spirited. And, you know, the, the, the flip side is I don't think we're going to be at any... La we're we're going to have any lack of applications for the iPad. I think they're going to, you know... <laughs> Where are we at? Like 180,000 for yeah. the iPhone now, but yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. So if I ever gave, if I did give the impression that that this restriction was a security benefit, then it's 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 hard to find one. Right. Next question from Corey McFarland in Minneapolis: uh, A fix for the cat mouse problem with Firefox. Hi, Steve. Uh, first, I've been listening since day one. Love the podcast. I've turned many others onto it as well. I'm also a user of SpinRite and have been for quite a while. It's been a lifesaver many times over, really. You guys may have covered the solution already, but I don't recall hearing this exact solution, and it has worked every time for me. I just upgraded to Firefox 363, and, of course, CatMouse quit working under the new Firefox. CatMouse is a great program. Steve has recommended several times. Um, that has that what changes the scrolling, is that right? Yeah, what it, what it does is it it is... Uh, everyone I've re recommended it to is unable to live without it right. after they use hooked. it Be because it it normally in Windows you need to click on something that is scrollable like your web browser or Notepad or Word or whatever anything that scrolls you have to give it focus as the programmers refer right. to it and then your scroll wheel will scroll it. Cat mouse is a little smarter. It looks at what you're floating over, whether it's got focus or not, and it sends the scroll messages to that window, even if it's low, not the topmost window or doesn't have focus. So once you get used to it, and if you have a mouse with a with a frictionless scroll wheel, it's just oh, it's just wonderful. But I talked about how, and 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 my tech support guy Greg had the experience of when we upgraded to Firefox three six three, it stopped working. So here's the fix. Uh, the original post can be found on the media support forums since it's caused so many cat mouse users grief. So Mozilla's published a fix. It's uh, item 571918 if you want to go to support.mozilla.com. 571918, about halfway down the page. Cat mouse works with Firefox 3.6. You just have to configure it. Right-click on the cat mouse taskbar icon. Choose settings. Select the classes tab. Drag the target icon at the bottom of the cat mouse window onto any Firefox window and release the target. Mozilla window class will appear as a custom configuration. You can double click on it for further configuration. You don't need to in this case. Apply it and you're done. You're teaching cat mouse about uh, Mozilla's windows. Exactly. And essentially what you're doing is you're saying this window already knows how to handle scroll wheel messages. Uh, Windows messages about the scroll wheel, so it's not necessary for Cat Mouse to convert them into up and down arrow messages for the window. 
Um, and I wanted to acknowledge all the listeners. Uh, I've been intending to do this in a Q&A for many weeks. Uh, and I just, again, I ended up finding so many other good Q&A questions that I said, okay, well, I'll just, I'll, 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 I, want, I wanted to mention this in errata, but I kept forgetting. <laughs> so now we're on the record. It now is you know. absolutely possible for CatMouse to be configured to be completely happy with uh, Mozilla Firefox. By the way, this applies a little bit to our last question. Because the reason that didn't work in Mozilla is because Mozilla is not using a standard Windows class. It's using its own Windows class, yep, not a Microsoft Windows class. And that's the kind of thing that happens when you allow developers to create their own. It, the more open the platform, the more people are going to do that. And so CatMouse makes an assumption, well, I know, Windows, I know Microsoft Windows classes. I'm going to be able to handle those. And if you do something non-standard, it's, it's going to get confused. Right, and it may well be, it may hail from Mozilla's cross-platform. That's what I think. It's, it's a cross-platform thing. Yep. And so and, that's and why say, I say that's the same thing. Exactly. Very yeah. good point. Yeah. yeah. When you develop cross-platform, sometimes you break stuff in the native platform. Right. Tony, listening in Yokohama, Japan, has some comments about OS, uh, iPhone OS 4 and its security improvements. Stephen Lee, I was just listening to your most recent Q&A, and I thought I'd bring up an interesting fact about the iPhone OS, one thing that has always bothered me about the iPhone locking feature is that it is a simple four-digit PIN. That's on the iPad, too, that way. You've mentioned before about complex passwords and password lengths, so I'm sure you could sympathize. Well, in the new 4.0 OS, or at least the beta, you now have the option of using a complex password to lock the phone. This enables the full keyboard, special characters and all, and still supports the 10 strikes option. That's the one I talked about the other day, where if you try and fail 10 times, it erases the data. Unfortunately, the beta had quite a few bugs, so I'm back to OS 3.1.3, but I'm anxiously awaiting the final release, or at least a more stable beta. They don't have iPads where I'm at yet, but I thoroughly intend to get one as soon as they do. Having access to a full password to lock the iPad would be a great feature. And I hope 4.0 is released for both platforms at the same time. Actually, Apple has said that the phone will come out first, iPad will be in the fall. Probably about the time Tony gets his iPad in Japan, maybe even sooner. Thank you for the great show. Keep up the great work. P.S. I'm a registered iPhone developer and was using the legitimate beta from Apple's website. No jailbreaking for me. <laughs> Good. Well, I wanted, to, I wanted to remind our listeners about that. My iPad got that lock put on it like within seconds of us ending our recording last week when you mentioned it. It was just one of those, duh, why am I not doing that? And, you know, it's very breezy to type in a four-digit a four code. I also activated the wipe memory if I miss it wrong 10 times. Can you set that or is it always 10? I think it's always 10. It's always 10. Because I'd turn mine down. I mean, I don't think I've ever mistyped it, but I might set Ooh, it you will. three. <laughs> <laughs> three might and, be a little uh, fewer than you want. <laughs> and I think that um, under this OS, the what, we're at 3.2 right now. I believe that the corporate configuration pack allows even this one to accept longer or ah, or full keyboard um, settings. I, I ran across some reference to that when I was reading through the, the developer docs two weeks ago. Um, but, you know, for me, four digits is fine, given that, you know, 10 well, strikes and boy, are you out. That's, I mean, it, that's the key is, uh, I mean, four digits, you'd have to guess, what is it, you know, an average of maybe 500 times, something like that. What is the well, average? If you have a thousand possible choices, 
Right. A thousand possible choices. Actually, you have 9,999. You have 10,000 possible choices. What is, so what would the average number of times, what would be the predictable number of times you'd have to try? A half? Yes, it would take, it would, on, on, on average, average it'd be g- half. guessing at random, assuming that there was no pattern that, that was, you know, like zero, 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 zero. Right. Um, yeah, you, you would expect, you know, that it would take you, that, that if you guessed 500, you'd have a 50% chance of, of, of hitting it. And so, certainly long before then, the thing will have wiped itself right. out. So Unless the person's lucky. Now, somebody, I think it was Dvorak. You could get lucky. Yeah. You could get lucky. Dvorak, I mean, you'd have to get pretty lucky. Dvorak, yeah. um, it's one in 10,000 each time, right? Dvorak said, you know, you, don't forget, you can look at the fingerprints and maybe, maybe suss it. <laughs> and he tried to hack my iPhone looking at the, where the fingerprints were. And that's interesting that he mentions that. There was, there's one, I found a couple really wonderful puzzles and... Um, one of them, you're inherently dragging your finger in a grid pattern as you sort of like drag these colored strips around to like weave them through something. And it was, it was so, it was the strangest thing because like the next morning, I, what, before I turned the iPad on, it was still dark. The, my, and I have an, an, an anti-glare covering, you know, top sheet on mine and the entire thing was like had these this like grease in a grid, you know, my finger grease just in this perfect grid because I'd been, you know, for I'd spent an hour dragging it around in these little street grids. That's funny. I thought, yeah, it's like, well, you really can't see where you've been. So I see John's point. Yeah. I'm glad he didn't try 10 times or I would have lost all the data on my iPhone. Yeah. Thanks, John. <laughs> he he is trouble. I'm telling you. He comes in Actually, here. Actually, that's a very good point. I mean, it, I'm not that losing all the data on the, on the iPad is a bad thing necessarily because it's sync it. It's, it's being docked and synced and so forth. But you know, you could maliciously wipe out someone's iPad just by deliberately being wrong ten times in a row. I had to take it away from him before he did Yikes. that. Yeah. <laughs> bad john he did that with mint though because i have mint he was trying to get my financial records and he was and it also has a four digit code on it and he was trying and trying and trying and eventually mint said no you gotta you 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 gotta log in again now dude and by the way we've talked about paypal um allowing you not to use your little security dongle right what i learned was that it only allows you not to use it maybe two or three times and then it finally says, okay, this is your last login oh, without using your dongle. Well, there you go. And, and I thought, well, that's good. They, that, that's, that's good. So I wanted to mention that. To better than nothing anyway. Yeah. Better, well, better than just allowing you not to ever use it again. Right. We don't need that dongle that we gave you that you spent all that energy setting up. What do you need that for? Yep. Question four. Jim McShaver in Saskatchewan noted something disturbing. Steve and Leo love the show. In regards to the iPad being the most secure device for banking, I don't bank over Wi-Fi anymore. The iPhone, and I would assume iPad, remember only the SSIDs that you have trusted. Okay. Unfortunately, they don't tie the SSID to a MAC address, even though that is spoofable. I own three wireless access points and have tested this. So if you've ever connected to Linksys, D-Link, or Steve's Starbucks... It will connect automatically to any other access point with the same name. This is also true of PCs, but they're not always with us. That's not right. That's bad, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Um, but it highlights something that I think is important. So, so just to summarize, what Jim is saying is that it's the SSID, the so-called, you know, the beacon 
which the access point broadcasts announcing its identity um that's what the the our wi-fi clients are matching on when they say you know reconnect without asking in the future so access points which are left set to their default of linksys or d-link or or whatever actually steve's starbucks is actually just at&t wi-fi and i'm sure that every starbucks has the same ssid which hmm. probably you know at&t wi-fi right so what he's saying is that 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 the while it's possible it would be possible to lock to the mac address where you'd be then as we were just talking about in this geolocating example you'd be locking to a to a unique access point rather than locking to the substantially less unique ssid name that the access point was given um but it's it's almost the case i think that that doing that I mean, yes, I would prefer that it was more discriminating and it would be nice if there was an option and you could say, you know, use the name or use the uniqueness of the access point. You'd have to, you know, dumb it down for most users because they don't know what a MAC address means. But, but you know, Jim is saying he doesn't use, he doesn't do banking over Wi-Fi, which I can certainly understand. But in all cases, we're typically talking about open Wi-Fi. That is, you know, when I'm using the iPad here at home, I've got deeply encrypted, you know, the best encryption we can with impossible to manually enter passwords from, you know, GRC's perfect passwords page. So I'm very secure there. But when we're out roaming, we're often in open Wi-Fi hotspots. So... So it's crucial that nobody trust those hotspots. That is the fact that the iPad is associating with the access point and connecting is whether it does it with you saying, yes, I give you permission or not. To me, doesn't really matter a lot because you've got no security on an open Wi-Fi connection anyway and you should never under any circumstances consider doing anything that requires encryption so so yeah it'd be nice if it asked you for 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 permission and you can configure you can configure the ipad and the iphone so that it will not automatically reassociate without your permission which anyone with this concern should do but i want to make sure that that everyone understands that you 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 know the the inherent danger in open Wi-Fi um, settings. We 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 had a Q and A a few weeks ago where where someone reminded us of this because a friend of his saw somebody running a wi you know Wi-Fi sniffing software on a laptop at you know at a facility at a location where there was open Wi-Fi. The person was clearly collecting usernames and passwords and you know email and who knows what from everyone who is there we just you know that danger has to be foremost in people's minds if you're ssl to your bank or to your email on an open access point you're okay though right well i wish it were true but you know we've seen how weakened ssl has become right there could be a man in the middle i mean it's just yeah um we 
um, you you want to make sure that you're that you're authenticated, you're connected to the 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 organization that you think you are using all the tools that are available using WPA two if possible. And I yes WPA two to encrypt locally and you know look at the security certificate right and and see that it makes sense. Unfortunately, I don't think you can even do that with the iPads. And we, there's a question that sort oh, of bears on. That's an interesting point. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there's a we toward the end of of this list of of security concerns. There's a there's there's a question that bears on that though, that we will get to shortly. Here's a kind of bizarre little side on this. If if you did use WPA two, even if the SSID was the same, obviously if the passwords are different, it wouldn't auto authenticate. What if the, what if the passwords were the same? Which is probably a highly unlikely scenario. Maybe Starbucks, though. Let's say Starbucks started to use WPA2. Or I got a better idea. You have a coffee shop that you go to, and they have three stores. And for convenience, they use the same SSID and password on all three stores. So if you, you know, it's automatic. Yeah, and, and it would connect. It without, would. Without caring, yes. Okay. So it's not doing Although anything you, else. Though you'd also have security in all three cases. So that would be good, as long as the password was useful. And see, that's another problem, is that... For example, there's an Italian restaurant that I like that has a that you know anyone if they have a big free Wi-Fi sign on the front door. And the first time I went in with my iPad, I said, "Hey, I've never had an occasion to want to be on your Wi-Fi network, but now I now I have that occasion because I have an iPad." And it was you know I don't know what it was like. It was well whatever the password was, the waiter just gave it to me, so it wasn't open, but and it was encrypted. But anyone, any customer asking could get the password. Of course, we know what that means. That means that even though you are in a secure network, everyone there has the password, meaning that that anyone can oh, listen in. On a public network, in effect. You, exactly. Yeah. You're back yeah. to the, the exact equivalent of yeah. open Wi-Fi because the password, even though, even without it being complex, it's something that anyone can know. And that's all it takes then to be able to decrypt everyone's traffic. Hysterical. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, I, you know what I really enjoy is how clever and thinking our audience is. They're always we got it. thinking yes. about this stuff. Yes. Vicissitudelicious. <laughs> and San Jose. That is the longest handle I've ever heard of. And most difficult to spell, by the way. Vicissitudelicious in San Jose asks about shields up and stealth ports. I've been trying to stealth my ports and have been unable to find a way to stealth them. I'm using Windows Firewall. It seems no one can only turn ports on. No, I'm sorry. It seems that one can only turn ports on, but not off. I've also tried using Komodo Free Firewall. Same problem when running shields up. My ports are all closed, but none are stealth. I used to have three ports stealth, but not anymore. I noticed that a number of people on the internet have had the same problem. How do you stealth a port? The only time I had all the ports stealthed was many years ago when I had Zone Alarm, which seemed to automatically stealth all ports, and that's because of Steve, by the way. <laughs> have, in fact, Steve's the guy who invented the whole thing about stealthing ports, so you're asking that, the right guy. I coined that term. Too. Yeah. Will you ever mention <laughs> how to stealth ports on a future show? Or maybe I missed it in the past show. I've listened to almost all of your excellent shows. But I'm getting old, so please forgive me for not remembering if you've covered this already. We cover it periodically, but it's a good thing to re- re- recover, I guess. 
I used to work on Federal Systems mainframe communications computers that had plated wire memory. That's core, right? It's sort of a pre a predecessor to core. Pre-core. 32K was huge. Well, yeah, if you've got to wire it all up by hand, 32,000 connections. Also, I more than that, right? Eight times 32,000. Also, I had to enter hexadecimal instructions using rocker switches. Steve had to do that, too. So we've really come up in the world. I've started to use vitamin D. Thanks for the advice. I'm hoping that vitamin D is the firewall that will pre- pre- prevent the biological viruses from getting in. I hear zinc looks good for that as well. So, okay, so stealth. Let's talk about stealth. Yeah, it occurs to me the reason that three of his ports may have once been stealthed was that at some point an ISP was blocking, for example, the Windows file sharing ports, which, for example, my own cable modem provider, Cox, also does. Um, mostly I'm concerned that he doesn't have any stealthing because it sort of implies he's not behind a router. And he's clearly concerned about security. And routers are so inexpensive these days. I mean, they're like sub $50 and trivial to add to a network. Um, The idea of not being behind a router just sort of gives me the willies. So, I mean, and to the best of my knowledge, all routers are stealthing now because it's just become the thing to do. I mean, I again, I have to say, I think it's Shields Up is largely responsible for that behavior because earlier routers weren't and people were complaining and routers changed their behavior so that people would stop complaining. You know, there's been controversy, sort of constant controversy, whether, you know, especially among the old Unix curmudgeons about whether this whole stealthing thing is worth anything anyway you know, it's it's technically a breach of the internet RFC rules to have any machine on the net not respond to a ping. They're all supposed to. And ports are supposed to be, you know, are supposed to answer that they're closed rather than doing nothing, which is what they do when they're stealthed. Um, I've always said, yeah, well, okay, I accept that. But it's isn't it nicer to appear not to exist at all? than to be an obvious machine on the internet that then in some way encourages people to poke at you more. So that's been my argument for it. Anyway, to delicious, I would say, wow, um, get, a, get a router and stick it between whatever connects you to the internet and your machine and you will be stealth. But more importantly, you'll have an, a, I mean, a layer of hardware firewall security which you lack right now. Um, It's too easy for something bad to get into your machine and turn off the Windows firewall or to to open ports through it by using the universal plug-and-play technology that Microsoft has has heralded. And um, so it's just so inexpensive and so easy to do. And then you you can, you know, you get the ability to share... Your internet connection with more machines, you get the benefits of a router, but also just the great security, which is inexpensive, um, of having something outside of your Windows machine that's, that's you know, protecting you from the net. The net's just, the idea of plugging a Windows machine directly onto the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just gave us chills. <laughs> Not in a good way. 
Question six, completely anonymous, somewhere on the net writes, TNO. But Apple. TNO is Steve's acronym. Trust no one. But Apple. Steve and Leo, towards the end of last week's episode 245, you started trusting closed source vendors. Whereas early in the podcast, you were all gaga about TNO. So the conclusion sounds like TNO, except Apple, Microsoft, etc. Is that what you meant to say, Steve? Well, now, it brings up a really good point. Because the only way you can serve, you can truly trust no one is if you go out onto the beach and get a bucket of sand <laughs> and set up a, a semiconductor fabrication facility <laughs> in your garage and make your own chips, which you design, and hope you don't make any of your own mistakes, which... Oh. That's are a lot more likely probably right. than Intel making a mistake. And then you sit down and write an operating system and all the required utilities and application software and so forth. And basically, from the silicon up, you build a machine. Short of that, you're trusting someone. Right. So we, we understand that there are always trade-offs. Security's not perfect, Companies are not perfect. Um, what you want is you want to choose who you're going to trust. And you want to trust as few people as possible or trust the most trustworthy ones and have the wisdom not to trust the ones that you shouldn't trust. This is all gray. I mean, I, I wish it were black and white. There isn't any black and white. So, you know, do we trust the people that build our laptops not to put bad stuff in there. There was a horrible and amazingly persistent rumor where on many websites, I'm sure you ran across it, Leo, where, where people were sending pictures of a keyboard um, a, a, a keyboard recorder that was supposedly embedded in laptops. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't. Right. It was just it was just uh, a, an, urban, an urban legend that because the photos look convincing and the write-ups look convincing. Everyone kept passing it around worrying that their laptops had built-in keystroke recorders. And they don't, you know, they don't. But, you know, we assume they don't. I mean, we, we know they don't, but they could. And, but there's just, it's just vanishingly unlikely that Toshiba or Sony or HP are going to build keystroke recorders into their laptops because it would just be the end of the company right? if they were to do so. And there isn't any reason for them to do that. Um, similarly, um, do I trust Apple? Well, I trust Apple's intentions. I, I don't really believe Apple has an economic motivation to, to maliciously do something. Neither do I think Microsoft has that. Um, you know, there was that NSA nonsense in Windows for a while. Some some DLL or something in the kernel talked about NSA, and everyone thought, oh, that meant that the NSA had back doors installed in Windows. It's like, no, that's not what it means. Yeah. So the the risk, the commercial risk of their reputation, it just way outweighs any other benefit they could gain by doing that. Yeah, I, I know. It, and and there are. There are plant, There are ample opportunities for bad people to get software in our machines 
to me, you know, that's the risk. Right. Now, if I, when I talk about trust no one and I use that acronym, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a nice reminder. And it, for me, it says, if, I ha- if there's an architecture which requires that I trust versus does not require that I trust, and I can use either, I'd, I'm more comfortable with an architecture that does not require that I trust. It's just harder to say all that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A little less pithy. So the TNO, acronym's longer. <laughs> TNO works. Yeah. Trust, trust the, trust no one. Well, you have to, but trust the. Eh, never mind. Yeah. Uh-huh. Bill Newhouse, Rockville, Maryland, asks about a single search to rule them all. Guys, is there a way to search into all episodes of Security Now via a single search? For instance, I might wish to know in which shows you discuss DNS. Searching show by show is painfully slow. I just discovered the Twit Wiki, and I recognize that wikis are good for such searches. You might want to highlight this notion in a future episode. Thanks for the informative, useful, and thought-provoking show. Of course, the wiki isn't perfect because we haven't been updating it since the beginning. It's a, um, relatively new. I wanted Bill Newhouse and all other listeners to know that we do, that GRC has all of the transcripts um, being searched and indexed by Google. And if you go to grc.com slash sn uh, in, in uh, uh, th- thanks to listeners on the show and Leo liking short URLs, grc.com slash sn will take you to the Security Now page. And there is a search box, as there is everywhere on GRC in the upper right-hand corner uh, up in the uh, in our um, site menu. And you just put whatever you want to in there. It will, uh, and that's that's a search by Google that's been customized. You do have to have JavaScript enabled. And I've been intending to look into that because a couple people have said, hey, your search doesn't work. And I'm pleased that they had javascript disabled um but uh the you know i just used the code from google that not surprisingly requires javascript since google is javascript land um but if you do have javascript enabled the search will work and it will find every because elaine went back and proactively did transcripts on all of the earlier episodes after we started uh using her to create um, weekly transcripts, everything is indexed and you'll find every reference to DNS or anything else we've talked about. And so it's really cool. We've got, we have, you know, Leo was talking at the beginning of the show about here we are approaching five years of archived content and it's all indexed and searchable. I should give credit to you because uh, Elaine didn't do it just on her own recognizance you paid her to do it so uh steve has out of his own pocket paid for all of these transcriptions and paid for going back in time to do that so thank you steve yeah grc and security now are a substantial portion of lane's income so yeah she keeps we we keep you keep her busy i'm glad to do that yeah well thank you i should probably i should probably uh help you with that now we should talk (laughs) i feel bad now (laughs) maybe i can write you a check um Number eight, we got three more. Duckbite in Mission Viejo, California asks about DHCP versus static IPs. I've been wondering this myself. I'm really glad he's asking. Stephen Leo, I have about 10 different devices connected to my home network. Automatic assignment of internal IP addresses is normally not a problem. But one of the devices is used as an FTP server, and when the internal IP address changes, 
and I have to change the router and server settings. Is I guess he's doing port forwarding or something. Is there a way to configure the network so that a mix of static and dynamic IP addresses can be used? And in fact, I'd like to add to that. When should you use I static? Is it okay to use static? Is DHCP okay? What you know? What do you th what do you do? You probably use static. You seem like the type. Yeah, uh, my entire network. I've just never even had DHCP in here. Um, although one of my one of my wireless routers is so that it just you know laptops don't have to be configured but another one is set up as as an old style um access point rather than as a router um but so here's the deal he's talking about not external access to his ftp server that is he's not trying to get to it from outside the internet he's just saying within his own home local environment he would like the IPs of, well, at least that one machine, that one machine that is an FTP server, he wishes that it's IP on his own network, you know, 192.168.0. whatever it happens to be, wasn't whatever it happens to be. Um, there's two ways you can achieve that. Most routers themselves now allow you to associate a mac address with an ip and that would that is to say the mac address of any of the devices on the network so and this is specifically to solve this problem so using the router's user interface you can there's normally a way there's an option on the menu where you can show all the clients that are currently connected that is to say all the devices which have obtained a DHCP lease. And we've talked about leasing because, uh, in fact, just last week when we were talking about the iPad's little glitch with its not releasing its lease if, if the screen had gone to sleep on you. Um, so what that, what that list normally shows is the MAC addresses and the current IPs that, that have been assigned by the router's DHCP. So what that allows you to do is determine the MAC address as the router sees it. So you would look at, for example, what the IP is of this D, of this FTP server now. And then you look in the table in the router and you'd, you'd find that IP and the MAC address of that machine. Then in a different area of configuration in the router, you're normally able to say, I want to assign static IPs one for one to MAC addresses. And so you could choose, for example, 192.168.0.20, just to sort of have it, give, you know, give it a nice number and kind of keep it out of the one, two, three, four, five range that all of your floating dynamic IPs are going to have. And so, the, and, and, and the way you do it is you say to the router, give this IP always to this MAC address. So every time, any time that machine turns on, the MAC address, remember, is actually the, the, the fundamental way that devices on an Ethernet LAN identify themselves. So that machine would be broadcasting saying, hey, I need my IP configured for me. What's, you know, give me an IP. The router receives that broadcast and says, ah, this happens to be a special query 
because it sees that it's coming from this particular MAC address. So it always gives it the IP that you've assigned it, 192.168.0.20, for example. So that's one way to do it. The alternative is if you didn't have a router with those features or if you'd want it, you want a router-independent solution, you can simply tell that machine that has the FTP server to not obtain its IP automatically. That is to say, in, in Windows language, we're used to seeing our interfaces set to obtain IP address automatically. If you just change that to something that is to, to assign it manually, then nothing prevents you from setting it yourself. That is on that machine that has the FTP server in it or any machine you want to have be a fixed IP, set it to something like 192.168.0.20. Now, you just have to you, make sure to avoid collisions, that's all. Correct. I was just going to say you you would there there's two things you can do. Normally, the range of IPs that will be issued by DHCP is settable in your router. You might say you might in in the configurations it'll normally have like a lowest and a, a lowest and a and a highest a starting and an ending number. For, so for example, 192.168.0.1 through 192.168.0.50. Now, it's normally the case that even though it's only going to assign IPs in that range 192.168.0. anything would be valid. So you could simply set the IP of this machine to dot 100, that is to say outside of the 1 to 50 range. And so it's got a nice number, dot 100. It, it, when you turn it on, since you've set it to, to have a static IP, it doesn't ask the router to get for an IP. It already knows what its IP is. It's dot .100, always. And then all of the machines that are getting floating random IPs, you know, they're always able, no matter what their IP is, to access the FTP server at 192.168.0.100. And uh, either approach will work. So I want some guidance from you, Steve. We're running out of time. We have about five minutes before we have to uh, do this week in Google, but we have oh, a no bunch problem. more questions. So, uh, and by the way, the remaining three are all about iPad security. Do you want to pick one and do it, or do you want to save these for another date? What would you like to do? Let's just pick one, and we'll. Uh, uh, I don't really have a pref uh, a preferred one. So let's just do number nine, and we'll do 10 and 11 next time. We'll save them. Alex Stubbs in the U.K. has a thought about iPad security. Steve, I've been a listener since day one. I really enjoy it. I have a quick response to something you said in the last show. You made the point that competing ecosystems to Apple's iPhone OS lose out somehow because they don't test and sign applications that are allowed to run on their systems. By the way, Apple, Steve Jobs recently uh, said in an, uh, in an email that Apple had no plan to do this kind of testing and signing on OS X. It's just for the portable apps. He says, that's not quite right. Symbian has for years enforced a process where applications have to be signed before a user can install them. When installing the application, it tells the user what parts of the system will be used, such as the networks or the contacts list. Symbian is an open source OS and currently the most used in the world, about 45% of all smartphones sold. While I do agree that the iPhone OS is a secure platform that would be very difficult to get arbitrary malicious code to run on, 
It would be not impossible at all to get Trojan-like applications to run, which, while appearing to be a useful application, were actually doing something you did not expect, like harvesting your contact list, for example. My point is merely that scanning and signing a binary file does not guarantee security, nor must such benefit nor must such benefit it be exclusive to commercial operations such as Apple's apps stores. Keep up the good work. Well, he does leave out one thing, which is that Apple approves all applications. It's not merely signed, but Apple has actually presumably has some sort of testing process. Well, yes. And so I think Symbian Alex does not. Right. Al and, and I guess um, Android does not either. Android is not. That's right. So... I wanted to say, and it may have been one of the other questions was going to prompt me, but I just sort of wanted to say that I'm I'm not meaning to sound overly unambiguously bullish about the iPad. I'm excited about it because it's the first thing that I've ever had that gave me instant on browsing and mobile PDF reading that was really practical. Um I don't, I mean, I would love HP's forthcoming Windows tablet to be really wonderful, but the battery life is half of what the iPad is, and you still got to boot or hibernate and restore and all that nonsense, you know, and the iPad is instant on and, and even receiving email when it's asleep. So, you know, it may very well be, I'm quite fickle as you are, Leo, you know, it might be that that there'll be an Android pad coming along that will yank me off of the the Apple solution in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. So, you know, at the moment, Apple's the only game in town with this technology. And I have to say that, that there isn't, and I, I think this is where the critics have come down on the iPad, there isn't anything really breathtakingly spectacular about it. I mean, it's not like there's amazing new technology which is you know, going to prevent anybody from coming up with a clone. And we know that the clones are on their way. If they're better in some way, and all, but, but not worse in any way, oh, that's what I'll switch to. Yeah, we, exactly. I think people often assume when we express, a, at least of me, not of you, but of me, that when I express a preference for an Apple product, that suddenly I am an Apple fanboy. Uh, but I should point out, I use a Google phone, an Android phone, and uh, I use what I like. Yeah, and if I don't and like so, something, I let you know. So I, I, so at, to Alex's point, I think that the more oversight that is brought to bear, the more security you will have. So, and I, and and it is the case that we've seen the difficulty of of adding security after the fact. Right. So the fact that these new platforms are are creating sandboxes and are so security conscious and are requiring things to be signed, um, that's just all good. And I'm, I'm glad that we're seeing an increase over time of security. Lord knows we need it. Well, speaking of all good, thank you all for your questions. Future feedback shows, we do them every other episode. Uh, you can ask a question uh, of by going to grc.com slash feedback. grc.com slash feedback. Of course, GRC is a great place to go for Spinrite, the world's best hard drive and recovery and maintenance utility. It's also the place to go for Steve's fantastic solutions, most of them free, like Wizmode, Shields Up, Shoot the Messenger, Decombobulator, and all the rest, the perfect paper passwords. GRC, Gibson Research Corporation, grc.com. 
Steve has 16 kilobit versions of that show of this show there, along with all the other shows. As he said, transcripts fully searchable, and show notes too. GRC.com/sn. Steve, we will see you next week for more security. You, do you know what you're going to talk about next week? We're going to get back to one of the to the thread that we were on talking about the um, this is the. Um, the multiverse was what I was calling the episode. Multiple threads, multiple processes, multiple stuff. So a little more of our Fundamentals of Computing series. Fantastic. I can't wait. GRC.com. Shields up. Leo Laporte. Steve Gibson. <laughs> Spin right. <laughs> Spin right. Have a great week, Steve. Thanks, Leo. Security now.